It was September 1871. Two to three dozen United firefighters, guns, sticks in hand, marched to the Hope Firehouse located on Cove near Church. They were seeking revenge for an assault against one of its own the prior night. One lone member of the Hope Fire Company was inside when the angry mob arrived. He did not stay long and ran as two shots were fired in his direction. Members of the United entered and are said to have rang the bell, letting all know they had taken over the firehouse. This can be compared to an American flag being raised above a fortress, claiming it in the name of the United States. That was not enough still for the angry mob. Though the steam engine was within reach, the hose reel was easy prey and quickly removed from the building. This action was truly the last straw. Any piece of equipment is a fire company's prized possession, never to be touched by a rival fire company. Even today, all across the country, permission is asked before mounting someone else's fire apparatus, borrowing, borrowing equipment, or entering the firehouse. Members of the Hope gathered and marched, facing off with the United in front of the Atlantic Saloon on Main Street. Shots were fired, sticks, stones, punches were exchanged. The Hope was no match. They came without guns or sticks. When the dust cleared, many lay wounded. James Durney, a United firefighter, was fatally shot in the back. The bullet lodged in his abdomen. He was carried to his residence on Water Street, where he died two days later. City Council stated, nothing short of a paid fire department will meet the requirements of our position. The feud is too bitter to allow us to believe that these two companies can continue their organized existence without further bloodshed and danger to the public. On December 15, 1871, the council approved the new paid Norfolk Fire Department. Now, let's flash back to the year 1682. A transaction for 100 pounds of tobacco was made for a patch of land 50 acres in length that would sprout unflattering homes along a handful of unpaved streets. I'm not a smoker, but was curious and had to Google how many cigarette cartons equals 100 pounds of tobacco, and the answer was, if anybody could guess, 26,500 cartons of cigarettes. Just a fact. Let's get back to our story. Properties began to spring up. Though the town looked nothing like Disneyland, the saying, if you build it, they will come, holds true. The new land had limitless potential importing, exporting, and a military presence. The unflattering shacks that were built had wooden chimneys. It does not take a rocket scientist to figure, to figure out that building a fire in a wooden chimney is cause for alarm. One simple hot ember from an unattended fireplace would cause a conflagration across the town if matters, excuse me, if fire matters were not addressed immediately. So the Virginia Assembly prohibited wooden chimneys. Six, 1736 rolls around. Fire potential increases as people still flock to this new plot of land and build while Norfolk becomes a borough. 1740, to better alert the new inhabitants to the outbreak of fire, a drum is said to have been beat, sounding the call for all able-bodied men to join and extinguish the threat by any means. There are no pictures, no exact location of this drum, but when you look at the old borough maps, I would bet it was located centrally where you see this red star. 
This photo shows a squirt made from brass. Our records mention they may have been used around the time period. They measured two feet long and required two to three people to operate like a syringe. Fifteen years would pass and the first manually operated fire engine is purchased from a company in England. How did we compare to other cities? Well, similar pumping apparatus had already been purchased from England by the city of Philadelphia in 1719, New York City in 1731. The wooden pumper was very plain. It measured five feet long, 18 inches wide, and 12 inches deep. When filled with buckets of water and manned by four to six men, the engine was capable of throwing a half-inch stream of water 30 feet from a top-mounted nozzle, as you see. Pumping was constantly interrupted when the machine needed to be turned. Within a two-year span and multiple uses, repairs were necessary. Leather was used as a patch kit to make the repairs. Other wooden pumpers were purchased by wealthy landowners of different sizes and configurations. The working principle was all the same. Add water from the bucket brigade, move the handles, or called brakes, up and down in a seesaw motion. The up and down motion would move the pistons, drawing the water in and out of the cylinders, up into the vacuum, and out through the nozzle. The stream spray was very broken and erratic. Even though these machines appeared to be almost caveman-like, they did serve an important purpose. So important that when English troops came ashore in 1776, they removed all the engines with the city mace to Kempsville. The burning in Norfolk was somewhat accidental. The objective was to burn the warehouses that snipers fired upon to, fired from to assault the landing party, but the flames could not be controlled. Home after home was destroyed. Nearly two-thirds of the borough laid in ashes. In 1783, the court ordered the return of the fire engines and digging numerous public wells for added fire protection. Upkeep of these wells required the appointment of caretakers, yet another fire protection safeguard, but still no organized fire company. 1793, an article in the Gazette mentioned an interesting fire tactic used after a fire started in a copper shop on Woodside Lane destroying multiple buildings. The fire was contained using gunpowder to create a fire break on account of no privately owned fire engines at the scene. Basically, they blew up some other buildings. The tactic proved beneficial because additional appropriations were made to purchase more gunpowder. Something else was needed in addition to the powder if private engines would not be an immediate response. So, an ordinance was passed in 1796 requiring all homeowners to provide a bucket in case of fire. Homeowners were not required to take part in the bucket brigade till 1799. So they could pretty much say, here's the bucket, you're good. Two years later, it was get on out there. In 1797, records support formation of the Union Fire Company here in Norfolk. They also may have gone by the names of the Old Union or Fire Company Number 1. The name Union Fire Company was very common for a community's first fire company. 
The possible reason was the historical figure seen here, Benjamin Franklin, who in 1736 formed the first known volunteer fire company known as the Union Fire Company in Philadelphia. Our Union Fire Company, like Ben Franklin's, primarily used organized bucket brigades. The, bu the equipment for the Union was stored in a building out behind the courthouse. Informal gatherings became formal monthly meetings, indicating the first organized attempt for a fire company that would exist till 1846. Following the appointment of well caretakers, fire wardens were soon appointed and started to enforce ordinances by imposing fines to make folks realize there are consequences for your actions. Five shillings were imposed against those who refused to fall in line of a bucket brigade. Homeowners were fined for unkept chimneys leading to a fire, and fines were imposed against those removing ladders and buckets kept alongside the market house. Now, a man by the name of Garrison is documented as Norfolk's first fire warden. He was all-powerful. He orchestrated fire suppression operations and prevention in the borough. This is a fire warden's staff dated 1796, given by, I'm sorry, 1797, given to the museum by one of our family members. This is what he held in his hand. It defined his position as fire warden. Also, from the movie, you may have seen a speaking trumpet. This was very common for the fire warden or the, the person in charge to bark out orders to command the scene. By 1806, the number of fire wardens grew. Fire engine captains also were appointed, and a group of 45 men managed the Mutual Assist Society in case of fire. Walter Heron, his name highlighted here in red on the list, owned a fire engine that was manned by his servants. In 1825, fire broke out in a blacksmith shop. Sparks spread, setting fire to the steeple of a church nearby. Heron lived nearby and responded with the engine pulled by his servants. During suppression operations, his residence, which was located at Wooden Church, caught fire from the sparks and burned to the ground. This drawing shows six firefighters pumping to pull a draft from a street well. The men would only last 10 minutes best and require relief. A 10 to 15 minute break and then return to the laborers pumping again. A group size of 50 to 100 men would not be uncommon to manage one fire engine. The Franklin Fire Company, date of organization is very debatable. Could be 1803, 1817, or 1827. They relocated a handful of times. No mention is made about their apparatus type, but it was obtained from a stable on Freemason Street. The Phoenix Fire Company was organized in 1824, located downtown on the lower end of Talbot. The Phoenix was equipped with two suction engines built by Smith in New York City. The fire engines were very small, piano-style machines, worked using side levers. Two-inch leather hose could throw a three-quarter inch stream of water, slightly improvement from the half inch a few years before. Their work song was, when the Franklin was in the mud and the Union was in the mire, 
looking at the Phoenix boys putting out the fire. All three companies, Union, Franklin, Phoenix, labored under many difficulties and made ends meet on little to no money. Very little care and attention was expended on the apparatus. The copper riveted leather hose was kept in closed places and often found to be a dirty mess to handle on account of the lack of care. Green mold would accumulate on the rivets and joints in spite of a layer of animal fat for protection. The Mutual Assurance Society of Virginia furnished the three companies only source of revenue by a donation of $400 a year. That amount was generally expended in paying colored men by the hour for doing the laborious pumping work. The city of Norfolk was incorporated by 1845. A devastating Main Street fire in 1846 made the insufficiencies of the volunteer system evident and needing reorganization. Part of the reorganization was the Phoenix and Franklin disbanding to form the Hope Fire Company. The Hope, was, the Hope gained additional members from an auxiliary unit called the Aid Fire Company. These new members from the Aid called themselves the Stingers. This belt here is a parade belt, which you can see up front in the lobby. The Hope Fire Company was a success, and it was soon necessary to relocate the growing membership and apparatus. The new firehouse was built on Cove near Church. Finley F. Ferguson was appointed the first volunteer fire chief engineer overseeing the Union and Hope. Six others would follow listed here on the screen. The new volunteer organization was a complete failure. Around this time, the fire companies were transitioning from all colored to white, causing many to refuse to work together. However, the fault was thought to be in the lack of equipment. So, Chief Ferguson visited the Harmony Engine Company in Philadelphia. This is a photo of their firehouse, still stands today, as a historical landmark. There, he purchased a double-ended engine made by Agnew for $400. Upon the return trip to Norfolk, the engine, like this one you see here, was given to the Union Fire Company. The engine was found not to have suction capabilities, which meant it required assistance from another engine to bring it water. Once it sustained water, it proved to be the best fire engine in the United States, capable to throw a stream of water through an inch and a quarter nozzle, 208 feet, well over the original 30 from 1751. 1850, another devastating fire, this time occurring on Water Street, caused the Union Company to disband. Members still willing to serve as volunteer firefighters joined a newly formed company named the United. The members built their firehouse on Water Street, seen here. They felt the waterfront needed better coverage. The work song of the United, down with the red, up with the green, for that is the color of our machine. A few of the notable members pictured here, Thomas Kevel on the far left, he would become our first chief engineer, fire chief. Thomas Rowland would become a fire commissioner and department historian, and John Weber would eventually rise to assistant chief engineer on the far right. 
The Hope and United were the standalone volunteer fire companies covering a span of 1.16 miles. A yellow fever epidemic wiped out a third of Norfolk's population in 1855 after a freighter named the Franklin was allowed to dock. I'd assume the membership rosters of both companies was affected, creating additional manpower hardships. A news article dated 1856 spoke of the Union, Hope, and Aid Fire Companies taking part in the procession to the church for services. March 4, 1861, Abraham Lincoln was elected president. One year later, civil war would break out in April of 1862, requiring all able-bodied men to enlist. Norfolk's bravest, the firefighters, answered the call to arms and furnished a number of military companies. The United Artillery, Harris Guard, Woodis Riflemen, Grays, Juniors, the Higgs Battery. In fact, it is estimated nearly two-thirds of the soldiers from Norfolk were firemen. Federal soldiers took charge in 1862 when the volunteer firefighters were away. They made efforts to organize what volunteers were made, remained. Sorry. During their occupation, the suction and water stream capabilities of steam power was introduced. A first size Amiskeg steam engine capable of 900 gallons a minute was purchased and assigned to the United Fire Company. But once again, the lack of hose made this top-of-the-line innovation useless when the Atlantic Hotel caught fire in 1867 and burned to the ground. How did a steam engine work? A hose connection was attached to a boiler in the firehouse keeping steam pressure at roughly 25 pounds. As the horses pulled forward, the hose automatically disconnected allowing the engineer to slosh kerosene on the elixir and kindling which was under the boiler. A strike of the match ignited the materials. As the steamer swung into the street, smoke would pour from the boiler and by the time it reached the fire, steam pressure would be high enough to cause a safety valve to pop. But keeping the steam pressure up at a fire scene was no easy task. Engineers were crucial in maintaining steam by balancing fuel and water. Too much water in the boiler and too little flame in the firebox meant a long heat time. Too much flame and too little water meant a boiler meltdown or catastrophic steam explosion. Engineers used gauges to indicate the boiler's water level and they inspected the fire through the fuel door. In April of 1865, Civil War ended with the surrender of General Lee. Troops from Norfolk returned home to find changes had occurred in their absence, especially the introduction of steam, as we just discussed. Now fewer men would be needed to man the apparatus. The volunteers feared for their, their livelihood. Annual elections caused the department rosters to constantly change. Over a five-year period, as you can see here on the screen, tempers would flare up between rival companies. By September of 1871, the rivalry quickly developed into jealousy, bitterness, criticism. The rioting that led to bloodshed settled the fate of the volunteer companies. Captain Thomas Kevill of the United would be appointed to lead the new paid fire department 
as the year entered 1872. Some brief information about Thomas Kevel. He was our first chief engineer appointed to lead this aspiring department. He was a family man, a founding member of the United Fire Company in 1850, a local businessman and served the Confederacy, most notably aboard the CSS Virginia during the Battle of the Ironclads here in Hampton Roads. His career in the fire service lasted 40 years, 24 as chief engineer. He passed away in 1896, two years after turning over his command. Recently, the fire department named its newest fireboat the Thomas Kevel in recognition of his service. The fireboat, pictured here on the screen, can be seen docked along Nauticus. The fire protection territory was still just over a mile and the population unchanged. Quick movement to any part of the city would be reachable from one central location. So contract was awarded for the erection of fire department headquarters upon the site occupied by the old Blues and Juniors Hall. A stone's throw from where you sit tonight just over my right-hand shoulder in the courtyard of the MacArthur Memorial. Upon completion of the building in 1872, the apparatus of the United, Hope, and Union Truck Company, operated by nine paid men, were transferred to the new quarters. The volunteer firehouses were all sold. An inventory of equipment and list of men are shown here on the screen comprised of three fire engines, four hose carts, one hook and ladder, 27 call men, six substitutes, and seven permanent men. All the modern improvements for speed were introduced and the department compared with few exceptions with the best fire departments in the country. The reason for such a speedy response was that the seven permanent station men had to give their entire time to the department under rules and regulations printed in 1872. Only when directed by the chief engineer or assistant in charge were they allowed to be absent or travel outside the city limits. The men shared the responsibility to maintain care and order of their firehouse in between calls. The firemen of each company devoted their entire day to cleanliness and readiness of the apparatus. A strong, dependable means of transportation was now necessary to pull the six-ton steam engines through the city streets come wind, rain, or snow. Horses by the name of Klondike, Henry Clay, Napoleon were all called to duty, and they were catered to for their labor. The horses received daily baths, rubdowns, spotless stalls, fresh feed, three times a day, mandatory rest periods, warm blankets, and while in the public, they received all the attention. Two horses go down in history in 1923 named Thunder and Lightning. They were the last two horses retired from the Norfolk Fire Department when motorized tractors were fitted to pull the steam engines and ladder trucks. Unfortunately, there's no such thing as a retired firefighter. The call to duty is second nature, no matter if you have two legs or four. The horses, in particular, thunder and lightning, were sent to a dairy company to live out their days pulling fragile glass bottles. 
As the fire engines rolled by, bells ringing, smoke billowing from the stacks, the horses would turn and run to follow. Milk bottles soared into the air. The horses quickly were reassigned to cleaning the streets. Notification of fire alarms came over telephone lines by this time. Norfolk installed its first alarm system in 1887 when the Southern Bell Telephone Company leased the city nine street telephone boxes. The boxes were used for both fire and police services. The city of Boston is credited with installing the first alarm system in 1851. It was not long after additional telephone boxes were purchased that one overhead circuit wire would become 12. Installation of indicator boards would indicate the box alarm number on a taper reel. Firehouse alarm bells would turn on the lights and release the horses who would step into position for harnessing, made for a quick response prior to the motorized era. The next two photos I wanted to show since they were taken in the same location out back here behind what is now the MacArthur Memorial, a few years apart. The number of men in both photos is roughly the same, 40. This photo shows them in parade attire on, on Memorial Day in 1888. This shows them in required duty attire. Again, when you leave tonight and you're walking to Cobble Stones out back, you'll pretty much be walking right where these guys were standing. Hopefully not run into any of their ghosts. In the spring of 1892, contracts were awarded for two additional horse-drawn steam engines. After being tested, they were placed in service at fire headquarters. One would be named the Edward Church and the other the Thomas Rowland. Both men served as fire commissioners. The names would be etched on, steel, on a steel collar attached to the steamer's smokestack, circled in red here above engine five. You can see the collar done for C.H. Bull, a fire commissioner, in the lobby with the other fire memorabilia. As Norfolk's population grew, a second firehouse was commissioned in 1893 on Queen Street near Church. Engine 2 and other equipment was moved from headquarters. The firehouse would eventually house a steam engine, hose carriage, ladder truck, and the assistant chief. August 7, 1894, Martin J. Ryan, foreman of engine company number 3, was elected chief engineer, succeeding Thomas Kevel. Seven additional men were added to the department roster. The city's growth continued to flourish, requiring the department to continue beefing up to provide adequate fire protection extending outside the city limits. To reduce water damage to property, the first chemical company was added to the inventory. A shed-like firehouse was built named Chemical House Number 1, located somewhere along Plume Street. The company foreman seen here in this photo is John Kigabin a local store owner who would become our third chief engineer. Records show chemical fire engines controlling 80% of the fires here in Norfolk. They were fast, already charged, and ready to activate within seconds after arriving on the fire 
at the fire and enabled firemen to get water on the blaze three to 10 minutes sooner than a steam engine. A chemical engine produced a water stream under pressure after a chemical reaction occurred between sulfuric acid and ordinary baking soda producing carbon dioxide. When carbon dioxide would generate the pressure within the cylinders to expel the water. The only downfall, the reaction expelled the water all at once. In December 1898, a third firehouse, pictured here, was commissioned on York Street near the Atlantic City Bridge for engine company number three. Engine three served Atlantic City, also known as the Sixth Ward. The community was full of elegant houses owned by wealthy merchants. September 21st, 1899, shortly after one o'clock in the morning, Box Alarm 37 was activated for the St. Vincent Hospital located at Wood and Church Street, seen here in this photo. Mutual aid assistance was received from the Navy Yard and City of Portsmouth. An article in the Virginia Pilot said, when the request was sent to Portsmouth, the message was, was received by the police department. The officer ran to the firehouse and found the rope missing from the bell. He succeeded in summoning the firemen by beating his bare hands against the clapper until they bled and became raw. Ferry boats carried the fire engine and personnel across the Elizabeth River. 20 Marines and Navy firefighters assisted from the Navy Yard. A roof collapse occurred, severely injuring Norfolk firefighters Tom Barrett and Robert Foster. Both were attempting the rescue of a confused patient that re-entered the hospital. Barrett never regained consciousness. This was the department's first accountable line of duty fatality. Though a sad time in history, it is the point I chose to end my presentation. It allowed me to transition into making you aware of a new museum that opened in 2010 to the public free of charge. The museum pays tribute to those like firefighter Tom Barrett that sacrifice themselves every day when, when they leave their families to protect, serve, rescue, and care for others. The Norfolk Fire Rescue Museum is located in the historic district at 401 East Freemason Street in the old Freemason Reception Building next to the Meyer Moses House across from the Freemason Baptist Church. The Fire Museum shares the building with the Norfolk Police Museum. This is a two-for-one opportunity. The Police Museum has a wide variety of badges, uniforms, photos, and handguns. The Norfolk Fire Rescue Museum is a newly formed 501c3 nonprofit organization. We are always seeking donations and corporate sponsors for our bigger projects. Donations and membership are relied upon to maintain displays, create interactive opportunities for children, and memorabilia preservation. When you leave here tonight, there is a donation box in the lobby to help the fire museum meet its mission to collect, record, preserve, and display. Thank you.